Romans chapter 8, our text this morning is verse 28 of God's holy word. This is one of those passages that we always, uh, well, let me just say this. This is going to sound, you know, like we, we're not doing this beforehand. But we always come humbly into a passage of scripture, recognizing that there is so much and there is so much that we cannot cover. And this especially is one of those passages. This is a passage that is just loaded. And it's very difficult to try to expound everything that is there. And so we humbly enter into uh, this passage. It is one of those texts of scripture that is truly loved by the people of God. It is a passage of scripture that we, that we say to those that are at the hospitals, that are having medical situations or whatever. This is the text that we go to. To try to give comfort to them. This is a passage that is used in counseling. As we see the struggles of the people of God and we remind them of this truth. It's a passage that you yourselves share with one another. Perhaps that you preach back to yourself. It is a passage that brings such comfort to the people of God. And that's the question, isn't it? Why, why is this text so comforting? What is the content here that consoles us during our trials and our suffering? How is it that this passage is intended to ease our minds and calm our hearts? And it's because that this passage is a promise given by our Lord through the apostle. That he is actively bringing good out of all the pain and suffering that we experience. And that is what gives us comfort. That it's not meaningless. It's not just random things that happen. These are things that God has allowed in our life. And he is working it for our good. And he does so by his sovereign hand according to his determined will. This passage reminds us even in, in our times of adversity that we experience. Whether it's on an individual level. Whether it's on a national level. It reminds us that. God is in control of all things. God has purposed all things. He works all things after the counsel of his will. And he's working all things for our good. These are things that we need to be reminded of. This is a passage that we, we say so often, but at times, maybe we say it without truly thinking of what all is contained here. As to why it is that this is given as a great comfort for the people of God. And this morning, this is the only passage that we are working through is verse 28. And I pray that we may know with even greater certainty that all things indeed work together for good to those who love God. And that's our purpose this morning. So if you would, please stand as we give honor to God's word. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly come into your presence. And we ask, Father, that 
that by your spirit you would give greater encouragement and comfort to our hearts, reminding us of these truths that we find here. Indeed, you are the sovereign one, and you work all things after the counsel of your will, and you work all things for our good. Father, let, let this be a great reminder to us in our times in which we, we, we fail. We pray selfishly. We pray perhaps even with bitterness because of what it is that we are enduring. But let this be a reminder that you are actively at work. You are performing all your good pleasure in us. And you're performing it for our good. Father, guide us through this text. And may we bring glory and honor to the name of Christ. Oh, Father, help me to get out of the way. And you speak to your people this day and feed their souls by your spirit. Father, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so I just read this passage of scripture out of the New American Standard. However, the way that we are going to be working our way through this passage is more in line with the English Standard Version, and there's a reason for that. The English Standard Version, as well as other translations, uh, they read this way. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There's some slight differences in the translations, and there's a reason for that, and we will... We will look at that uh, briefly here in just a little bit. But I'm going to be working our way through the passage according to the English Standard Version, which is closer to the Greek text itself, that it really front loads the fact that all things work together for good for those who love God is what comes first. And that's where we want to really focus in on, for those who love God. Now, one of the first things that we find within this verse is the certainty that the apostle has here concerning the truths that he is getting ready to expound. And this is so vital for us to understand that he's not talking about wishful thinking here. He is saying with certainty, these are things we know. These are things that you can know, dear church, that you can be confident in when you endure your times of trial and suffering and pain and sorrow and sadness Whatever comes our way, we understand this is certain, these truths. He starts out, and we know. He's like, what do we know? He's continuing from the previous verse, of course. We know that according to the context of most of all, the eighth chapter here, of the ministry of the Spirit of God to the believer. Recently, we've under, come to understand that the Spirit of God bears us up in our weakness, that He prays for us when we don't even know how to pray. He's the one who is interceding on our behalf with groanings, with wordless groanings, according to the determined will of God that He is praying for us. And because He is praying for us, the Apostle says, we know. The Spirit of God is praying for the people of God interceding. And he intercedes according to the will of God that God has determined. We talked about that last week. There are things in the scripture that we can certainly know as far as the revealed will of God or what, what it is that God desires of his people. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
We look at the Ten Commandments. We see the things that are there that are pleasing to God. We look to the law of God. We see the things that are pleasing to the Lord. And we say we do these things because God has revealed them to us that we understand that God is pleased by this. We know that it is God's will for our sanctification, for our growth in Christ. The thing that we don't know is how it is that the Lord is going to bring that certain thing about. This is God has determined and revealed your sanctification is part of his will for you. But we don't know how it is that he brings it out. We don't know that secret determined will of God. And it's not for us to understand. It's not for us to know. The secret things belong to the Lord, right? But the very thing that we are to do is to have confidence in the Lord, to have trust in the Lord, to know that whatever comes our way, that we know that it's from the hand of God. We can say with you know, the others and, and, and all of this that, well, maybe the enemy is attacking. And recently we've been talking about that. But even when the enemy attacks, it's not as if the enemy is performing some kind of an attack that is, that is unbeknownst to the Lord that it is still under the sovereign hand of God, regardless if it comes from the enemy, regardless if it comes from within with our own struggles. We know that God is sovereign over all things. And that's some of the things that the apostle is reminding us here. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Because of the Spirit's intercession in our weakness of prayer. His intercession is to cause the circumstances that we are enduring that we can't even find words to bring before the Lord. To, make, to, to bring it about for our good. Paul says we know. We know with certainty. And, and we have to ask the question, how it is that the apostle can know this? How can the apostle say that? We know. And this is speaking of a, a, like a deeper knowledge, this Greek word here. You have it used interchangeably with another particular word. You have gnosko, then you have oida, which are two words which are translated no. And each can be used interchangeably. But it is emphasizing that, that knowledge of God, that deep knowledge of God. We know. So how can the apostles say that? The apostle doesn't know what we endure every day, right? Well, how can he say that? Well, here's this apostle who's penning these words, who's been shipwrecked three times, who's been stoned, who's been beaten by the Jews on five different occasions with 39 lashes each time, who was a partaker of the stoning of Stephen in the time before his conversion, one of the things that probably haunted him. And throughout all of these things and more, he says, we know. We haven't been stoned, have we? With rocks. <laughs> Must clarify. We haven't been beaten five different occasions with 39 lashes. We haven't been shipwrecked three times. We haven't had a whole city up in arms because of us preaching the gospel. We haven't been brought before the magistrates because of our testimony of Christ. And we definitely have not endured the persecution of not only the Apostle Paul, but the saints throughout all of history that have given their very lives. Including the apostles, not just Paul, but the others. And yet the Apostle here says, 
We know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together. So how does he know this? You know, you think that the Apostle Paul here is anticipating that the church is going to have a, a, at least a, a good knowledge of our Lord according to what we understand as the Old Testament Scriptures. You know, when you look in the Old Testament Scriptures, you see the goodness of God towards His people. You see the sovereignty of God over all things. These are things that, that are permeating through the Old Testament. We know these things. God is sovereign. This is, this is the same God, and this is what we have to sometimes think to ourselves. This is the same God who speaks creation into existence and who upholds all things by the word of His power. And this is a sovereign God. This is the God who, who brought a great judgment upon the world and the world couldn't do anything to hinder it. God had determined it was going to happen and He brought it about in the flood. This is the same God who is in control over all the nations, that in the times of His people's faithfulness, He brings blessing to them. In the times of their unfaithfulness, He raises up a nation or raises up a people to conquer His people in order to chasten them and then delivers them whenever they repent. This is a sovereign God. This is the God who raises up empires, who judges those empires by raising up another one. Now you think of the Babylons, he raised up Babylon in order to judge his people, but then he says about Babylon, I'm going to raise up an empire that's going to judge you for your wickedness. And so he raises up the Middle Persian Empire. And then he's going to raise up the Greeks to punish the Middle Persian Empire. I mean, this is a sovereign God who does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. That's what the scriptures tell us. You think about what Nebuchadnezzar said. This is a pagan king in Babylon. And here's his testimony after the Lord had chastened him and humbled him. In chapter 4 of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar has his seven years of out of his mind, all of that, he is delivered from that. Verse 34, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is a pagan king who made this confession because the Lord, who is the God of Israel, is demonstrating that he is the God of all, that he is the God of the nations, and he humbles a pagan king in another land. You see the sovereignty of God 
in the lives of Daniel, in the lives of Shadrach and Meshach, Abednego. You see how the Lord is working in Babylon, though he's supposed to be the God of Israel. You have that thought at the time that Babylon has their God, Molech. You have the, you have the, the other uh, gods that are of the people. And whenever you had two that were uh, battling it out, their thought was that their gods were battling it out too. And whoever won, well, that was their God having victory over the other. And they were contained to their own lands. But not for the one true God. Not for the God who made heaven and earth. Or the God who does whatever he pleases in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all the deeps, as the scripture says. He does whatever he pleases. You see how he worked in Egypt through the great wonders that he performed. And every plague that he brought was an attack on the gods of Egypt to demonstrate there are no gods at all. And God is working in a foreign land. You think of the, the great vision of Ezekiel. You have this vision of Ezekiel, uh, the, the vision that Ezekiel has, that you have this wheel within a wheel, and you have these four living creatures that are in there, and you have this platform on the top of it, and you have the throne that's sitting on top and the one sitting on the throne. And you look at the ancient civilizations at that time, and one of our professors, Dr. Daniel Block, had showed us pictures of archaeology and all of that at that time, and you had these little statues that are of the very description of these four living creatures that were there, then you had a platform that was on it and their God would sit on it. And then here you have Yahweh, the God of Israel, who's coming into the land of Babylon. And these creatures go wherever he desires for them to go. And he is showing to Ezekiel, even in the time of their, their exile, who God is. He's the God of heaven and an earth. He is the sovereign God over all. What does the Lord do at man's rebellion according to Psalm 2? He laughs at them. He laughs at their rebellion. And in spite of them, he establishes his appointed king which is Christ Jesus over the nations and the nations are his inheritance. And he even calls to the rulers and says, kiss the son, lest he become angry. Show discernment. Because Christ is the king. We have this knowledge that God is good. Not only is he sovereign, but he is good. He is good to his people. We see that throughout the scriptures. That God blesses his people. God is faithful to his people. God brings about good for his people. That is all through the scripture. Of God's graciousness, of his mercy. You know, whenever he passes by Moses, there were probably a number of different things that our Lord could have declared to Moses when he passed by him. But he says, I will make all my goodness to pass by you. And when the Lord passed by, what did he say? He could have said anything concerning his, his very nature and his attributes and, and all of this. But what did he say? The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, full of loving kindness. Because that's who he is. And we have this knowledge. 
given to us in the scripture of the sovereignty of God, of the goodness of God. And so Paul says, we know. And you can know that not only by the scriptures, but consider the, only, the times in your own life. What is it that the Lord has brought you through? Some times of pain. Some times of suffering and sorrow. The times that, that you've just been so overwhelmed with mental anguish. But he brought you through. Why did he bring you through? Because he's good to his people. And that's the key. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God is good. Specifically, for those who love God. This is an exclusive promise. This isn't a promise to everybody that all things work together for good. This is a promise only to the people of God. That's who he's talking to. He says, we know. The people of God know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together. You know, we were just singing the song, My Lord, I did not choose you. I know that if I loved you, you must have loved me first. That's what 1 John says. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not that we loved God first, but that He loved us first. I want you to ask, ask yourself this question. Why do you love God? Why do you love God? You've never seen Him. You read about, about Him in the Scripture. But why do you love Him? Do you remember the time in your life in which you didn't love him? And then all of a sudden you have affection for him? How did that happen? I remember going to bed one night, not thinking of anything in particular, just thinking it's the weekend, Sunday I have off, I'm going to sleep in, my wife isn't going to bribe me to go to church with those Charlies. I'm sleeping in. Not a care in the world. Then all of a sudden you wake up the next day or I woke up the next day and something had changed. Something was different. I woke up thinking, oh Lord, what is my life like? You've done all this for me and what have I done for you? I've done nothing. And all of a sudden I was concerned about it. And I wanted to go to church. How does that even happen? Because it wasn't you that loved him first. He is the one who loved you first. And when he talks about there, we know that for those who love God, all things work together. These are the same ones in the latter part of this verse for those who are called. For those who are called by God. Now we talk and we distinguish between two different callings of our Lord. We have the, 
the general call through the preaching of the gospel. Now, we believe in the free offer of the gospel to every person. We preach the gospel without, without distinguishing between one or the other. But we recognize this. Only God can call the heart. And you know how we know that, even when we don't really think of it? What is it that we do when we have lost loved ones? We don't continually sit at our desk and we try to come up with the best argument that we can for the Christian faith in order to try to convince them. What do we do? We pray. Oh, Lord, save my family member. Why do we do that? Because we recognize that only God can open the eyes of the spiritually blind. And that's where you have that passage in Ezekiel 36. I will take out your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And so you shall observe them. This is a sovereign work of God that he calls to the heart. And this calling achieves its desired purpose, which is you answer. And because of this work that he does in the heart, changing the person, giving them a new nature, giving them new desires, whereas before that they didn't have it. Because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're by nature a child of wrath. And all of a sudden they have this affection for God. Where does that come from? It comes from the sovereign work of God. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Those who received him were first born of him. They received the divine summons. And they answered the king who called. It's not that you loved him first. For you had no love for God. You had no affection for God. You loved your sin just like the rest of us. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We too all formerly walked, Paul says. That was all of us. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's grace. Saved in spite of yourself. You received the calling of God. That changed who you once were. And as somebody new. And this was his work. A work that we can't perform. A work that we are unable to perform. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6. He says it in verse 44. He repeats it again in verse 65. You can't come to me unless the Father draws you. Then he repeats it. You can't come to me unless it is granted to you. And the idea of can't is implying ability. You don't have the ability unless the Father draws you. And the word for draw isn't to try to woo you. The word for draw is where you, as R.C. Sproul says, you take a bucket and you reach down the well and you draw out the water. This is something that God actively does. Just as the psalmist says, he brought me up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, set my feet on the rock and established my goings. 
That's what God did. You can't come unless it's granted to you. And so this is exclusive. This is an exclusive promise to the people of God. This is something we know for the people of God. That all things are working together for good for those who love God. You know, there is, there is some things to say there about all things that for those who love God, those that are called. It's not, as if the, it's not as if that God only does good things for the people of God. We do recognize that there is God's common grace. That there is three types of love like R.C. Sproul refers to. One is God's benevolent love which is his goodwill towards his creatures, his beneficent love, which is his kindness and action towards his creatures. It rains on the just and the unjust. He allows the wicked to prosper. He shows them compassion and restraining sin. You know, there are things that even the Lord does even for the unregenerate, for the wicked. There's a kindness there. And you could say that there is a type of love that God has. But the kind of love that God displays generally to the world is not the same kind of love that he loves you. The love of complacency. Not the way that we use this word now, but according to its original root word, it means to please. For those that God is pleased with, there is a special divine Love, that loving kindness, that has said love, that loyal love, that faithful love that God has only for his own. And if you think about this, that as Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, Father, you loved me before the world was. And then he prays to the Father that they would know the same love that he has for the Father and the Father has for him. That the Father loves you with the same love that he has for Christ his Son. That's not given to everybody. That is only given to those who are in the Son. And for those that are in the Son are those who have been called. The scripture says you've been called into fellowship with the Son. Peter says you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you are the called of God. This language is used all through the scripture. Even in Romans chapter 8, which we will get to hopefully next Lord's Day. He says in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You recognize that these are in the past tense as if it's a done deal. He doesn't say that those who are called, generally, some will be justified. He's being very specific. Those whom he called, he justifies. These are the ones who exercise saving faith in Christ. These are the ones who have great affection for God. 
and who receive this promise that we're getting ready to look at. And it's with certainty because Paul says, we know. Because the Spirit prays on our behalf, we know that this is true. He goes on to say, And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. William Hendrickson says, All things, no less, cooperate for good. That all things are the subject of this verse. Now, I, I told you just a little bit ago that there's a difference in the New American Standard concerning this passage. And you probably noticed it as I was reading it, as you were looking in your, your Bible, if you had a different translation. And the reasoning for that, according to William Hendrickson, is because the translators of the New American Standard wanted to make certain that the reader knew that the one who was causing all things to work together for good was not just some random chance or some immaterial whatever, that this was God who was doing it. And so they made sure to, to put that in there in order to clarify the context that it's God who is causing all things to work together for good. And while we understand perhaps why it's there, really it's not necessary, is it? Because the entire context of chapter 8 has been about the ministry of the Spirit. And we know that he says... We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And that's implying that for those who love God, it's God who is causing these things. So it's not necessary to have it written out that way. But that's the reasoning for it. All things is really the subject of this. Then in God's all-embracing providence, Hendrickson says, all things work together for good to those who love God. All things encompass everything. It includes everything. Good, bad, times of joy, times of sorrow, times of happiness, times of suffering. William Hendrickson says this, Not only what the saints themselves experience is included, but also whatever lies outside the sphere of their personal experience. Specifically, the following entities are those that are divinely ordered and directed so that they work together for good to those who love God. The good angels and Satan together with his host, the nations of the world and their rulers, rain and thunder, streams, mountains and clouds, and even the stars in their courses, end quote. It's all-encompassing. All things are in view here. All things work together for your good. How can that be? It seems as if that wickedness runs rampant at times. It seems as if the enemy gains a foothold and things are happening and we wonder what's going to happen. I love what Joe Beakey says. About Satan. Satan is like a dog on a leash. We talked about that a few weeks back. Satan is like a dog on a leash. And the one who's holding it is the master. We know that Satan is working and can only work under the sovereign hand of his God. His creator. We know that from Job. We understand that from the books of Kings. There are instances in which Satan has to show up with the rest of everybody else and give an account. Right? 
Satan can only do what is permitted by God for him to do. So if Satan is under the sovereign hand of God and his minions are also in fear of, of the Lord, as you see in, in the, the Gospels with Christ, you have the Gadarene um, demoniac who when, he, when Christ comes on the shore, he runs right to him full of legion, right? The demons. And he falls. Have you come to torment us before the time? They were in fear. They were in fear of Christ. Has the time come, you're going to torment us. Or you think about at the Last Supper. The Last Supper, it was necessary for Judas to betray Christ according to the Scriptures. But the text says something very interesting. That Satan entered Judas. And then what happens? Jesus turns to him and says, What you do, do quickly. And he immediately stands up and immediately goes out to conspire. How does that happen? Especially considering that this is going to be Satan's own defeat. He had to have known what was getting ready to happen. Because if you remember at the temptation, what did he say to Jesus? He said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. All you got to do is bow down. He knew that Christ was coming for the nations. I'll give him to you. You don't even have to do all that other stuff. I'll just give him to you. He knew why Christ was here. And yet he couldn't resist the command of the God-man. What you do, do quickly. Move along. And Satan obeyed. Because Satan is under the sovereign hand of God. And so all things then, whether it's from man, if Satan is under the sovereign hand of God, why in the world would we think that man can get away with things that God hadn't ordained? When man is lower than the angelic host, man is not even as powerful whatsoever as the angelic host, and they have to obey whatever the God says, even Satan himself, and yet we think man can thwart the will of God? These tiny little grasshoppers? God forbid that we would think that. Man is nothing compared to God. Nothing. And so regardless of what it is that is happening, these are things that are ordained by God, and God is working them for our good. And here's something to consider, that this isn't an instance in which God is sitting back going, I wonder what it is that those are going to do right there, and how it is that I'm going to use that in order to bring about some good here. God has already ordained everything. It's not that He knew it was going to happen. We like to think that. We like to say, well, because of God's foreknowledge, He knew it was going to happen. But you cannot divorce God's foreknowledge from His power. He knows all things because He's ordained all things. He ordains all things and He knows all things. You can't divorce those attributes of God in that way. He knows what's going to happen because He's ordained it. And He uses secondary means, even evil men, in order to bring about His will. We see that in the garden. If it wasn't meant for Adam and Eve to sin, it wouldn't have happened. But God used even Satan to bring about his decreed will. 
And therefore, God uses even evil men to bring about his decreed will. You see that with Pharaoh. And we may look at that as well, just as a little footnote there, and we say, well, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and then God hardened his heart thereafter. No. You go back and you read Exodus chapters 4 and 5, and that it's the Lord that promises already, I will harden his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart in response to God's hardening. Not the other way around. Because God is not a responder to man. God is the initiator. God is the planner. He doesn't wait for man to do something and then figure out how he's going to respond. God is intimately involved in everything that occurs within this world at every moment. Permitting whatever it is, bringing it about by secondary means according to his will. One guy actually had the gall to say that, well, yes, God is, God is sovereign over all things in the sense that he has to give power to the creature in order to perform this particular wicked task, even though he's an unwilling participant. And I'm thinking, what in the world are you saying? God has to permit this to happen and give them the power to carry it out because that's what they want to do as if it was, un he was unwilling for it to happen, but he had to. This is the same guy that said that God is sovereign by right, but not sovereign in actuality. Dear friends, that's heresy. God is sovereign over everything in creation. As R.C. Sproul says, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. Everything is ordained by God. And so all things, the good and the bad, the joyful and the things that make you happy and the sorrowful and all of this, all things are ordained by God and He uses them for your good. Just as Joseph said to his brothers concerning all the evil that befell him, you meant this for evil. You carried it out. You're responsible for it. But God meant it for good. We see that over and over in the scripture, how man devises evil plans, but it's the Lord who has ordained it all. You think of the worst thing that has ever happened in human history, which is an innocent man, a truly innocent man was murdered. And it was Christ. The only true innocent man. And yet, as Richard had went over with us in the book of Acts, it was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that these things took place. They were responsible, but God is the one who ordained it. Sovereign over every aspect of it. And so when he talks about here, all things are all-encompassing. It's not just some things that God is working for your good. It's all things. Even your mental anguish, your suffering, your trials. What is it that happens when you endure those times? Or what should happen? You run to Christ. I can't think no more. My mind is just so overwhelmed because of this. And, I, and I'm just feeling this. What is it that you do? You pray. And you're asking God to help you. Sometimes that may be the only thing that comes out of your mouth. God help me. And what is it doing? It's producing in you a greater dependence on the Lord. 
a greater trust knowing that his presence is with you, that he's bringing you along, that he's helping you to endure. It produces in you a greater trust, confidence, all of that. So that your times of suffering are meant for your good. You know, the apostle said earlier in chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so he's saying we exult in our tribulations. It's like it's not fun when you're going through it. It's not enjoyable when you're going through it, especially when you have the death of a loved one, when you get a medical diagnosis, when you're having all kinds of problems at work or you didn't get your promotion or whatever the case is. These are not times of, of, of enjoyment. But the result of that Afterward is something that you can take joy in. Because as a result of this, your character has been affected. Your hope has been affected. Your perseverance has been affected. And so there's an increase in your faith. There's an increase in your, your knowledge and, and relationship with our Lord. That's why he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which will come upon you for the testing of your faith as if some strange thing happened to you. You know it's coming. As Job says, he performs that which is appointed for me. And he does it to bring about your good. To bring you even more so to be conformed to the image of his son. For that's what verse 29 says right after that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good that comes out of any of our trials and suffering. This is the intent. Sometimes they can overwhelm us and sometimes we uh, have a tendency to perhaps think that there's nothing involved in this. There's nothing good that can come out of this. But if you just stop to remember that you're serving a sovereign God. Nothing happens by chance. It's not random. For any of us who have listened to the song, Though You Slay Me by Shane and Shane, you have that little excerpt in there of John Piper of a sermon that he did. And so these words should be very familiar to you. He says, not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, But all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. Of course, you can't see what it's doing. But don't look to what is seen. And so therefore, dear Christian, he is working all things together. All things are working for your good. And we'll look at that in a moment. But this means that any slander that you receive, it's 
It's working for your good. Any mental anguish, it's working for your good. Any medical diagnosis, it's working for your good. Your times of prosperity are working for your good. The promotion that you get at work, it's working for your good. Or the time in which they overlook you for that promotion, it's working for your good. It's working for your good because the sovereign God who loves you is the one who has ordained all things after the counsel of his will. And that will is being prayed for by the Spirit of God as he intercedes for you. They're working for good, he says. This means profitable, something advantageous, something upright, righteous, virtuous, something with moral excellence. This is what the word means, agathos. This is working for your good. Something to make you more morally excellent and righteous. Remember what verse 29 says. To be conformed to the image of his son. To work. He says God works together all things. That means to devise, to plan, to design. He has designed this for your good. According to his purpose. The very thing that is set forth. His predetermination or his purpose as it is translated. That God has planned it from the beginning. And brought it about at his point in time in your life. It's according to his purpose. His predetermination. Again, God is not a responder to man. God is the planner. God is the initiator. And all things occur because of his plan. Not ours. Not fallen man. He's bringing it about. His purpose. So we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So dear friends, I don't know what it is that you're going through in your life. I don't know what kinds of things that you got that, you, that you're struggling with. What kind of things that cause you mental anguish? I have no idea. But you need to be encouraged by this. You need to know this. This is true. This is with certainty. Paul is saying this with certainty. We know these things are true. Whatever it is that you're enduring or have endured, he's working it together for your good in order to grow you in Christ, to grow you in your faith, to conform you to the image of his son. It's not that he has abandoned you. It's not that he has forgotten you or doesn't take notice of you. That's why verse 29 comes into play that for those whom he foreknew, not those that he looked down the corridor of time and seen somebody praying and on the basis of that he elected them the faith. This word has a deeper meaning. Those whom he loved beforehand is the meaning of the word foreknow. Those whom he loved beforehand, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He does love you. He does take thought of you. And the Spirit is praying for your good. 
So whatever it is that you endure, dear friends, this passage is meant for us to, to be comforted by. It is meant to comfort you. It is meant to give you strength as you endure the trial and, and know, I don't understand why this is happening, but I know for certain that a sovereign God is the one who is guiding me through this, and he will ultimately bring it about for his glory. Maybe I don't know in my own lifetime why this would ever happen, but I know that he is bringing it about for his glory because God always does that which brings him the most glory. You may not know why. Job didn't know why, did he? Job and his buddies are trying to figure this whole thing out throughout the, the entirety of the book of Job. We know why it happened because we get to read the first couple chapters and see the whole meeting. We see that there was none like Job on the earth. And we see the Lord bringing up Job to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Well, you can do this and this and this, but you can't do this. All right, well, when I do, he's going to curse you to your face. Well, that never happened. Because those whom God preserves will never be lost. And that was one of the main lessons, in my opinion, what the Lord was showing Satan. This was a lesson for him. Not so much for Job. Because by the time you get to the end of Job, and he's trying to figure out everything, what does the Lord do? He rebukes him for all of his wrong thinking. And what does Job say? I'm going to put my hand over my mouth because I'm speaking of things too great for me. What does the Lord actually say to Job? He doesn't tell him this is why it happens. He basically says, I'm God and you're not. So we may never know sometimes why things happen in our life. But we can rest assured that God's working it for our good. So be encouraged by that, dear friends. Trust in him. Have confidence in him. That's, that's the hard part, I understand. But this is why you have to repeat these things back to yourself. That's why you have to preach it back to yourself. And regardless, find your satisfaction and your joy in him, even in the midst of the pain. Piper also said, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. So let us be satisfied in him. And trust our Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, for this text of Scripture, which just gives us such encouragement. Father, we know that you are sovereign. All things are ordained by you. You have declared the end from the beginning. And you will perform all your good pleasure. Help us to remember this. We so easily forget. We so easily get caught up in our own problems, our own pain that we forget. Passages like this that should help us to focus back upon you. Father, we, we get bitter. Help us. Bring this passage back to our minds in our time of need. Thank you so much that the Spirit is continually praying for us when we don't know how to pray in those times. That he is interceding on our behalf. Thank you for his continued presence. Thank you for his continued strength. Thank you that he brings us along in our Christian life and that he prays for us. Father, thank you 
for all that you are. Thank you for your goodness and your graciousness and your mercy towards us. Thank you for everything that you provide us. Everything in our Christian life is because of you, and you are the one who's working in us. Be glorified in us. Use us for your glory. And Father, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen.